So Genesis with a Y. Was that Karen? Or that was Karen. Was that a marketing company that became? No, that was okay. us. That was. Okay. Well, I shouldn't say us. That was them. Um, they wanted it to stand for systems. Man, you just blew my mind. I didn't even pick up on that. Like the Genesis and the systems, and like, dang it, how did I not see that? Like, Everyone nah, knows Genesis nah. with the I S yeah. from the band. I yeah. was like, she's like, no, we spelled it right and we did it intentionally. That's, and she was right. That's, yeah. that's brilliant. Okay, man. Yeah. Now, now you guys just took it to a whole nother level for me. <laughs> Well, let's start a podcast, Mr. Matt Moynihan. How you doing, sir? <laughs> Moynihan. I got that yeah. for years. Yeah. Now, so Matt Moynihan, you're the Chief Strategy Officer of Genesis. How you doing, man? I'm good, man. Good to be here. Good to be here. Love the jacket. We were talking jackets beforehand, man. Yeah. That's a killer looking jacket. And thanks for for traveling down from the big uh, NYC, right? Yeah. Are Anyone? you in, are you in Manhattan or what part of the NYC? I live in Midtown Manhattan. Okay. And I've lived there for 20 years. Can't get my wife out of there. I've tried for I at see, least the so last it's, 10. It's your wife is not you that would. Uh, you guys have another place that you would live if you, you had a chance to. <laughs> That's probably the biggest debate okay. is where we'd go next. But yeah, she. I mean, she dreamed about living in the city her whole life, so it's been a tough sell to try and get her out of there. Okay. Maybe maybe when the kids are grown up, maybe you can get her out. Or what do you think? I don't know. I mean, when you have kids in the city, it's like having like two more adults in the house. Like, <laughs> like the apartment starts feeling a lot smaller with the kids. Yeah, it's, that's that's wild, man. I don't even think about that, right? Because we, we're in Texas, so you, yeah. you know, like we've all got a little bit of space. We're in the suburbs, most of us. That that the New York City living is almost like a, a different planet for people that are outsiders like me. Yeah, it is. Well, we, it was funny because we were actually um, a couple of weeks ago we were going to visit some friends, and they asked us like, "Will your kids be okay without their own bathroom?" And we're like, well, "They haven't even had their own room. <laughs> <laughs> their own bathroom, they'd be stoked. <laughs> yeah, like they're gonna be okay." Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. So. All all right, cool, man. Well, we're going to talk Genesis today, and I like it, Genesis with a Y. You'll have to tell me about that, that yeah. spelling here in a minute. So Genesis, you guys are a consulting firm. Boutique is probably not the right word because you go up market pretty considerably, but how do you guys position yourselves as an agency? Well, we are a boutique. I mean, we are okay. boutique in, the, in size and scope, but we, what we do from a, from a service standpoint is aligned with traditional consultants where I think we differ is we have a really big focus on population health. Okay. We functionally believe that we can impact the client's overall expenses and cost as it comes to healthcare, but also improve the employee experience and improving access to care, improving employee health yep. and driving a culture of health and wellness. And that's been like that health and wellness discussion has been all over the place. We talked about it. I know it we talked about it last night. Yeah, yeah. But I think the real, the reality is it's not like some wellness program. It's actually like to get people healthy, you got to clinically manage them and yeah. you have to get them in front of a doctor. You have to give them access to care. You have to help make it easy. You have to incent them. And that's something that we do, you know, that I think is more unique because that's not a place, that's not like a, a profit center for most consultants or brokers. Sure. That's a place where, you know, a lot of that work, we're doing that for very little or no money. Like that, the part for us that's exciting is that we know that like what that can generate and what that can do, whether it's saving money from off primary care costs, whether it's improving employees' health just in general. So like a lot of what we target is like hypertension, diabetes, hyperlipidemia. Yeah. Um, and we look at those as like the true risk pool because like you're always going to have the cancers pop up. And, and, you know, like if we... If we knew it was causing the cancers, like this, this podcast would be filmed on my yacht. Yeah, yeah. No. But since, well, since I'd be, your yacht or my yacht, like <laughs> I don't know what two, you, yeah, maybe they'd the be two, linked yeah, together. Yeah, let's do that. But yeah. I think you know, for us, like those are control. All of those disease states are controllable by medicine. Okay. And so, how can we make sure that people are one identifying like what the problems are, and yeah. then two, like how can we get them to adhere to medications, and you know, and helping them understand you know that there is you know intrinsic value not only for the company you know but also for the employees well that's you know i want to go like really deep in the weeds in that this part is you know i think because you're a crossfit guy too you obviously take care of yourself the health component the the preventative health side of our business is, is often overlooked and it sounds like you guys are doing some awesome things being independent i think is one of those yeah uh, uh key uh differentiators for you guys to get the chance to actually go to that depth rather than you know be incentivized to do other things this podcast is brought to you by true captive insurance a premier medical stop-loss captive for employer groups ranging from 25 to 1,000 employees. True Captive believes in healthcare that is personal and insurance that isn't complicated. That's why they take a white-glove approach, making it easy for employer groups to transition into a program built specifically for them. Check them out at truecaptive.com. This podcast is sponsored by PlanSight. PlanSight is a technology for employee benefits brokers to more efficiently manage their RFP process for any group size, all funding types, and over 20 benefit lines and point solutions. PlanSight is the only end-to-end -end RFP technology on the market today. Let's modernize your RFP process together. Check us out at PlanSight.com.
Uh, I'd be remiss though. I want to. I want to get to know you a little bit more. I want to get to yeah. know your backstory. I know you spent a decade at Aetna. You started at Genworth. Uh, walk me back though. We were talking about college, man. You were recruited to play soccer in college. Decided that wasn't for you, and you said no. Rugby is instead. So I want to hear a little bit about that story of switching yeah. to rugby <laughs> in your college years. Well, I think the coach of the soccer team decided it wasn't. He for was me. the one yeah, that he, said he, it. Yeah, yeah. He, you know, I was given the opportunity to practice with them in the winter, but definitely missed the fall season. Okay. But I was definitely brought in, went to preseason, didn't make – actually got a really bad case of food poisoning during preseason, but didn't make no the team. Okay. Uh, practiced them a little bit in the winter, and then I met the rugby team, you know, somewhere around, like, February, and I was like, you know, good guys. And honestly, like, what was funny about our rugby team is they had the highest GPA on campus. Really? Yeah, it was, yeah. It was all a bunch of, like, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and pre-med guys. Okay. And some, <laughs> like, pre-law. It was like – like, and they were smart, and we had a really, really good team. And so I started – we – a bunch of us went out and were like, this would be fun started playing and, and I played um, through college and then for a couple of years after. And then it really got to the point, like, especially, you know, you were a group rep, I was a group rep. Yep. You know, I was a young looking guy going out meeting with people and like I had a, both my pinkies would dislocate okay. pretty frequently in games uh -huh. or I'd come in with a black eye and like people would be like, who'd you fight this yeah. weekend? Like, yeah. no, I was like, I had a rugby game, like totally. Yeah. You yeah, know, sure I got a lot did. of that where yeah. like someone would shake hands with you and like the pinky had been dislocated over the weekend and like, oh. and like you'd shake hands, you'd be like, crippled so it, it just like it was a bad feeling that yes yeah, so i can imagine right there's that uh, eye of skepticism looking at you like is this guy like a ruffian is he really a rugby player is he just like to drink and get in fights at the bar you know yeah. like who knows could go either way not necessarily <laughs> a bad thing for a group rep though like people don't necessarily hold that against you as long as you're getting your proposals delivered on time and stuff like that correct but so is, is it hard to pick up the rules i mean i know nothing about the sport so like what was that learning curve like it was there was some technicalities i mean there are some similarities to football in some ways there's you know some similarities to soccer so like inherently it wasn't that bad it took a little while and there's some rules you're like i don't know like yeah you, it, like and it, it, it self polices so like you'll see in a rugby game you'll see someone like getting like in a in a in what they call the ruck getting like getting raked and they'll be getting stepped on by someone with cleats oh, and that, so you like very quickly know what you can and can't do like okay. if you're on the ground you grab at the ball and you're supposed to be like out of the play and you're supposed to be either rolling out or, or staying still okay if you reach i mean someone steps on your hands someone steps like you start like really quickly ah so then, then learning what you, you can don't even and can't need the referees do. to control everything like there's other players the opponents are there's telling a lot you what of that, you can yeah. and can't do especially back then i mean that was you know 20 years ago so like it was even like less regulated than it was now okay. you know it's much but it was yeah it was it but your skill set as a soccer player you said the agility like the endurance being able to kick a ball obviously is something that not as natural for every other athlete yeah. but it comes natural to soccer players so so you're able to pick it up pretty quickly and you didn't play pro i guess or you did minor no, no, league no. kind it of was, style what was the afterward college so after college there was a couple different leagues in the u.s back then so there was the super league which was like you know eight or ten teams throughout the country and we used to play some of those players mm -hmm. and then there was what they called like below that was like the major league and that was us and nobody was paid you know yeah. it was not it was like very far from what it is today yeah but it was i mean it was some really good players um, we had a couple guys on our team that were capped. So, you know, one guy had, you know, 30, 30 caps with the Eagles as a U.S. player. Okay. So, wow. I mean, we had some good players. And it was interesting because that's when you could also start pulling in guys that, like, didn't make it in football. Okay. So, like, that guy happened to be, like, an all-ACC tight end. He was fantastic. Yeah. And he was, but he was also 6'5". Yeah, yeah. It also imposed a nice. lot of different yeah. challenges to tackle. Like, yeah. those guys became infinitely harder to tackle. I would say, like, guys like you and me are just, like, grabbing at the ankles, right? And just holding <laughs> on for dear life. But uh, You're hoping that, someone steps on your chest and falls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got him, got him. <laughs> well, so so when did you – so you were simultaneously doing that, but you were also – that's when you started at Genworth, right? Yeah, okay. well, actually, so we came out – I started um, I started GE. Oh, GE, So it was okay. GE, and then we spun off into Genworth. Okay. Um, and LinkedIn, like, I think when I originally built my LinkedIn post, it was not capable of having like that transition. I see. Yeah. But yeah, so it was GE Capital. Um, it was after they bought Phoenix Home Life. Okay. Were um, you a ancillary rep? Ancillary rep. Okay. Well, okay. ancillary and stop loss back you then. You did stop loss back then. Okay, yeah. Cool. Back cool. then we were doing stop loss and we had, like, honestly, we had fully insured medical. Okay. But it was, I mean, getting wins on that because the network at that point was already like, we were, our best case scenario was like a PHCS offering. And so it wasn't, we didn't have great discounts, but we could write some here and there. Okay. Interesting. I didn't even know that, yeah. man. So did you stumble into insurance like most of us, or, like, did you know you might want to do it? Like, how'd you, how'd you get here? <laughs> so the only person I know who's ever wanted to do it was our CEO, Karen. You mentioned that yeah, last night. She yeah, she studied. Cool. I met her first day at group school, and she was the one who was, who was actually, like, I studied. I went to risk management school. And yeah. like, how did you get in? <laughs> hey, what is that? You yeah. know, but um, for us, like, I got into this. My first job out of college was at a place called Commonwealth Financial Network. And I was essentially, you know, working in the clearing trades. Like, they call this cashiers. So, okay. we were the back end. So, they were a, a broker dealer for independence. 
and I was horrible at it. And so I'd always told the story that like Tom Glavin got me this job because I miss him. I, he got a check from the Braves and he was one of the clients of financial okay. advisor. Yeah. And I missed a zero when I typed it in. <laughs> so they were like, you met Tom Glavin got 3.4 million and you put in 340,000. Oh geez. And so I remember that's a little bit of a typo. But right? I, so <laughs> I texted a buddy. I'm like, I just like, I stink at this job. I hate it. Yeah. It's all data entry. This is not yeah. for me. Yeah. And he's like, my cousin is interviewing somebody at, um, at Villanova this week for a job at his company. Do you want to talk to him? And so I took, I took the interview and then I looked like I was going to get the job and I wanted to move down to New York. So I moved to New York city, laid tile until group school started. So I worked as a, as a contractor laying tile for no kidding, six man. months. Yeah. How, what was that? Was that a, a good experience? I mean, it's, I, before I, I finish that question, I'll say, I, I imagine when you get to do a project like that and you actually get to see it done, like I, I'll even follow some Instagram accounts where it's like guys, just, it does like a time lapse of like, you know, re refinishing a bathroom. I'm like, ah, oh, it's so satisfying to see the outcome, but I'm sure the work itself is, is pretty difficful, right? It was fun. I mean, I was a laborer through college. So okay, like, I, were, okay. I had done a lot of that work, but this was interesting because the guy I was working with did really high end stuff in New Jersey and he was fantastic at it. So it was cool actually to see some of it. I didn't see all of it because it was only for like a four or five month window right, right. to keep myself alive living <laughs> yeah. in New York. But yeah. it was like bar money and food, okay. um, but it was in rent, but it was really, it was, it was gratifying because a couple of his things had been in like better home. So uh, you'd see like that stuff, you know, years later. So it was kind of neat and you'd cool. recognize it because a lot of this stuff was so different. So that's, that was really cool. That's awesome, man. So then you go to group school, which I didn't ever get to have the experience of group school. I, I don't think they kept, I don't think they did it anymore or they do it as much. And of course I only, I only did stop loss. I was yeah. never um, like a life of disability rep so that you go into group school. And then what is that experience like as a guy that didn't like to do this analyst stuff and the data entry? Now you're learning insurance products. Was there, was it difficult? Did you pick it up? <laughs> like how, how'd you, how'd you find it? It was hard. Yeah, I mean, okay. it was, and it was great. It was really challenging. You know, honestly, like that's how I became um, very good friends with Karen, our CEO. And she, like you, I think in that you have to kind of like re-engage studying, right? Okay. Like it was yeah. different. And so there was a lot of work at night trying to, you know, for me, like it took some time. Like I wanted, to, I had to figure out the math and, and go through all that. And it's just the way I process. So, but it was, it was a fantastic experience. You know, you live in, a, you know, we were in the middle of nowhere between Connecticut and Springfield, Mass, Connecticut, yeah. uh, Hartford and Springfield, Mass. And like you're, you're, you're just away from home, like for eight weeks learning, and then yeah. you go back out in the field, and then you come back and like see how you failed, and then like they retrain you some more. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So, so you we get did like, like a follow weeks. up training then. Okay. We did eight weeks, and then like another four in October. So it was like June and July, and then it was you know a couple weeks in October. But like they let you into the wild, so like you go out. <laughs> and, like, it's enough time to fail, okay. and then come back and be like, all right, here's what you did wrong, and you could like. And That's then it was cool. That's really cool, man. So when you hit the net, when you hit the first full year, you were really like you had had enough experience to know what not to do. And you had done like whatever stupid stuff you were going to do on your first two visits, you know, yeah. whether it's like spill the brochures or <laughs> knock over a water, like you've done that now. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, the yeah. nerves were out. You knew what to do. You took your lumps for sure. And so I think it gave some really interesting context. So to me, it was like the best way to learn sales. That's far all. none. Yeah. Well, that's great, man. That's why I'm, I'm kind of like jealous of, of that, that training uh, regimen. So did you enjoy being a rep? I mean, I feel like it's a good place for anybody to start an insurance is in the rep world. Did you enjoy it? Did loved you take it. to it pretty quick? Okay. I loved it. Yeah. yeah. It was, it, it took time. Like, you know, that was during a period of time like it was you know I started in 2002 so it was you know 18 months after September 11th when I was so oh, like yeah. one of the things that was really uniquely different to New York was it was really hard to get in like okay. like I couldn't just drop in and that was like back that was one of the biggest conversions was if you didn't have the relationships you couldn't get in the door to go see the brokers because if they didn't put you on a list you couldn't get through security uh, and it was insanely tight I and mean, it still is tight but it was mu like back then it was so rigid. you were literally knocking on doors and trying yeah, yeah trying yeah 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 so how did you circumvent not being on the list did you ever find ways to get around it or? yeah you did I spent a lot of time in long island much okay. less rigid no okay. but, they, they were, <laughs> but there was um you just had to keep working like you had to stay in like back then it was kind of a hybrid like we were newer to email Oh, so yeah. we were still dealing in faxes, but it was really like, as the opportunities came in, like you just had to, you had to manage them. Like it was the only thing you were going to see. Yeah. And like, I think eventually people understood that and like that started to build the trust and the repetition and increase the opportunity. Um, well, that's that something really I meant, you know, like, because I'm removed now from the actual individual RFPs, like yeah. sometimes I miss the obsession about a case, like going to bed at night, like hoping I can get it and what am I going to do? And then you wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, ah, you like get in a panic in the fourth quarter. There's some fun to that stress, you know, yeah. and then just obsessing over a case. But this, the interesting thing is like, 
so much of that is out of your control. So just because you wanted this case doesn't mean you're going to get it as a rep, but you might get this case you didn't anticipate. You get yep. an email two weeks later, hey, you got it. And you're like, what? I got what? Uh, <laughs> um, so that's like, you didn't have a lot of control over that, but it also was fun because you just, you got to know the employer, you got to know the broker, you got to know the risk profile of the group. And it's like, you're you're almost married to this one particular opportunity as a rep and, you know, hoping you get it, right? Yeah, yeah. I agree. And it, I think like... I like that, you know, risk reward, like that yeah. time. And so that to me was always really fun. I just thought that was such a fantastic job. Not even out of college. Like it could be a, it's a fantastic I career. I didn't do it until I was, was like 30, 31. Yeah. 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 And it was, a, it was per, the best change in my career that I ever had, man. Um, so uh, flash me forward now. You, I know you spent a decade at Aetna. What, how long were you at uh, GE, Genworth, and then uh, go over to Aetna? It was about four years at Aetna, four and a half years at, at I'm sorry, at, at GE into Gemworth, and then um, I spent twelve, almost twelve years at Aetna. Oh, did you? Really? Okay, so, yeah, and yeah. then and then three at Namely. Was that in medical and self-funded medical? It was a little or? of both. Okay. So I ran. Um, I went over as a rep. Okay. Worked into managing the New York and Jersey New Jersey market for life and disability, you know, sales and service, and then was promoted to run the region. So I was the I think we called it back then. It was like the region head of sales for in service for the Northeast. So basically, you know, South Jersey all the way to Maine. Okay. Um, and that was that was a lot of fun too. That was a great job, and like I got to meet and like what I've loved about all those jobs is it gave you exposure. I met like mm -hmm. a lot of the brokers in the in in the marketplace throughout the Northeast yeah. and beyond. Became very good friends of mine still to this day. Yeah, um, and so I love that. I spent a lot of time um, working with my counterparts on the medical, and and we were hosting different advisory board meetings. So like it was just like there was a lot of really good information sharing that we got to do, and a lot of really good relationship building, um, and then somewhere around my tenth year, I was brought over to. My counterpart went to take over Alliant in the Northeast. Okay. Um, and he was on the medical side, and they asked me to go over and take over the uh, the management of the medical team for New York and New Jersey. So we were responsible for about 80,000 members a year. Okay. Um, That's a lot. Good amount of premium. Yeah. You know, somewhere around like 150 to 180 million in revenue. Yeah. So <clears throat> that was a really exciting change. It was hard because it was a very steep learning curve. I, yeah. was in, I was fortunate in that a lot of the executive meetings I was sitting in in my previous role had been exposed to the network. So like one of the things that I heard on a, a monthly basis and spent a lot of time with our network team, one, just because I became friendly with them, but two, it was just very interesting to me, the contracting components. Mm -hmm. And now how big that was to the overall, you know, profit and loss of the organization. And so I get to hear a lot of the updates, what was happening, you know, some of the developments of the ACOs, pay for performance contracts, that type of stuff. So I went to the medical side, that eased my transitional yeah that makes sense yeah just because like at least i had some of the vernacular i had my history it, it but it was it was hard like that was a hard well, learning I, I say it all the time it's like if you just understand the <coughs> language of our business you're 80 yeah. percent of the way there already listen like knowing what the jargon and the terminology means to get comfortable and confident enough to at least sound like even what you know what you're talking yeah. about at first until you really know what you're talking about so um i, I want to get us forward because i really want to spend a lot of time on genesis but the last question i have for you and kind of your career is namely i think yeah. was your last stop and that's more in the tech space or software tell, tell me a little bit about namely and yeah. what you know you go from I think it was Aetna to Namely, correct? Correct, so, yeah. So insurance to what? What, what, what was Namely? It was insurance to insurance, I but would, it was okay. different in that um, Namely was an HRIS bid admin payroll system. Okay. Um, we They had started a consulting business. So when I got there, we had about like $2.8 million in consulting fees or revenues. Okay. Um, we scaled that over three years to about $16 million, which is something that I was really proud of. Wow. Um, wow. We It was rapid growth, So, but it was a lot of what when I went in there, we were structuring a business. Like we, you know, at that time we were kind of a blob. Like we had hired a number of really good consultants um, and analysts that came over from Willis. Okay. Um, specifically in New York, but we had a team in California, a team in Austin. Um, and we were building out that business. Um, and, you know, after, you know, 15, 16 months, it was really about like, how do we operationalize this? Like, how do we start building the processes, you know, creating the tasks? Like, how do we start tracking the work and understanding what success looks like? But one of the biggest things on that was that system is a front-end system. So you have, like, the HRS payroll and Ben Ammon systems, and that's all about, like, the employee experience. Mm -hmm. um, smaller groups, you know, average group size at that time was, like, around 120 lives. So we couldn't make the impact that I wanted to on, like, cost. Yeah, yeah. Because that doesn't, like, that's a lot more transaction. Yeah. And you're in a very rigid, fully insured, or level-funded environment is maybe, like, your best case. We had a bunch of self-funded clients, but those are fewer and further between, sure, you know, of sure. the 500, maybe that's, you know, 25 of them. Yeah. But like, you know, a big thing for us was really trying to like operationalize that business. So that gave me a really good head start on what we're trying to accomplish at Genesis because like the operational components we've already, I've, I've built know how to do it, you know, and then the part that I'm really excited about is like the, the employee impact because I like, I want the employee experience to be good, but yeah. like that goes beyond like enrollment. That's a one time a year thing, right? You know, payroll, all that stuff. Like that's great. But like, there's more to this than that. 
Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's, you know, introducing the new benefits, introducing the options, but yeah. really it is the, I would say the engagement with the member or the person, the individual to go, well, what, what can I do with these things or how do I, throughout the year, do I take control of some of the, you know, choices I make for consuming healthcare or maybe my own personal health, which I yeah. really want to talk to you about population health management. Um, so the genesis of Genesis, if you will, not yeah. to know, no pun intended, but, uh, so Genesis with a Y, was that Karen or that was, Karen was that a marketing because... company that became, no, that was okay. us. That was, okay. well, I shouldn't say us. That was them. Um, they wanted it to stand for systems. Okay. So, because oh, we ah. functionally believe that there's like the system is, you know, there's a lot, we talked a lot yesterday, but there's a lot of challenges with like the different tech stacks in our business, but that doesn't mean that's not going to get there. Yeah. And the systems are the future. It's, you know, at some point things are going to integrate and, you know, I think everyone right now, the great arms race is trying to figure out how that's going to happen. Right. Right. But <clears throat> that's going to happen. And people want to have, they want to have the integration. They want this to be easy mm -hmm. and it's not right now. And so like we did that because we didn't want to limit ourselves to just consulting. We wanted also just reference and, and recognize the fact that there is a system component to this that's going to continue to enhance and enhance and improve and improve this business. Man, you just blew my mind. I didn't even pick up on that, like the genesis and the systems and like, dang it, how did I not see that? But it's now I, I understand it even on a deeper level. It's brilliant. Uh, but it, well, it I mean, if, in fairness, like when Karen told me the name, I'm like, you realize like you spelled it wrong, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she was, I was like, like everyone nah. knows Genesis with the IS yeah. from the band. I yeah. was like, she's like, no, we spelled it right and we did it intentionally. That's, and she was right. That's, yeah. that's brilliant. Okay, man. Yeah. Now, now you guys just took it to a whole nother level for <laughs> me. So, so Genesis and you're focusing on systems, which of course you obviously know. I, I like that idea quite a bit. But like, how do you leverage um, being a smaller boutique agency, if we get to use that uh, terminology, how do you leverage systems to create efficiencies for you that if you guys are not, you don't have a thousand employees and access to all the just human capital, how do you have those systems help leverage you to position you against some of the, the big, big boys? Well, and girls so I think some of it is, is the type of systems you're using and it depends on for what. And like we, I, I believe fundamentally that you know, you can't really whitewash the business and say, like, everybody's got to do this. Yeah. So I think it depends uniquely on what the problems are. But one of the things that we leverage the system for is our data warehouse. And so we use DeerWalk currently. But we we believe, like, that takes a lot of the claims reporting off of the carriers and puts it in our hands. Yep. Gives yep. us the ability to drill down. So, like, when we talk about population health, I can look and, and look on a monthly basis, like, you know, you know what's the year-over-year -year performance of hypertension, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, metabolic syndrome on the account. Um, I can start looking at different details that we can start trying to solution on, like, how do we get to those people? And, yeah. and that system gives us the ability that now we can do outreach on those specific mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. because we know who they are and we know what the problem is. And how can we do that? So, like, that's a system we use to gain efficiency. And then, you know, whether it's <clears throat> alignment with the right Ben Ammon system or mm -hmm. even, you know, plant site's a really good example. Yeah. And how can we start streamlining the RFP process? Yep. And make it easier for people to digest, make it a more like consistent document, get us out of spreadsheets. Like yeah. if I if I don't have to use Excel ever again, I'm cool with it. Uh, me too, even though I was pretty darn good at Excel at one day in my my career, but it's just like you realize you can do nearly anything you can imagine with Excel. Yep. You also have to be incredibly proficient in order to do that. And it somewhat creates a situ situation of a house of cards, right? Like one small commas out of place or when you set up a formula, you may not even realize you've got an error. I, I heard it estimated something like 97% of spreadsheets contain an error, like whether or not that's made up stat or, or who knows. But I believe it. I believe it as well because yeah. a lot of times you might have an error that you don't catch for six months. And guess what? Maybe you're using an RFP shell to use for every group and all of a sudden, oh, wow, crap, I realized I got an error in this spreadsheet. Well, I replicated it 27 times now and you know, it creates obviously a situation for an E&O. And anyways, not, not anything that you don't already no, know. I agree. I agree. Um, but it's like, if you can get people out of the weeds, being so concerned about like they came up with the best spreadsheet in the world, like consultants like you that are going, no, we're hammering strategy, population health, we're hammering systems. We're not so worried about whether or not we have the world's best Excel deliverable you know well, what I mean? but we do like yeah. like we we were incredibly proficient with it yeah. it's just it's not where i want to live yeah you know like agreed. our team yeah. and so like the thing we take pride in like we can go to market we can do all the things that every consultant does and we're fantastic at it it's just the way we've done it for the last 20 years does not have to is be that how we're optimized do it for, for what yeah. you're trying to do though right like it's yeah, having matt spend three hours in a spreadsheet the best use of your time on behalf of your clients right yeah. and i think that's where you know you got some very smart people that get paid a lot of money to build some crazy things in excel could you repurpose those very smart people to do stuff that it's even more strategic than just building these models but anyways again nothing yeah. that you don't already agree with so <laughs> I'll, I'll get off my soapbox here so as we're starting to leverage these systems towards population health management i want to actually 
go pretty deep on that if you're willing yeah. to. So yeah, things like hypertension, hyperlipidemia and stuff like that. So like, how are you actually getting these members engaged? How are you actually getting to the point of helping change behavior at the ground level with these employers? So something we focused a lot on was like creating a care spectrum. So okay. the last couple of years we've been, we've, we, Karen and Tiny too, like just giving them a lot of credit because they deserve, they were on the forefront of like the, the, the onsite clinic model years ago. I mean, they've been mm. trying in implementing these since 2012, which is really on the front end of this. And, mm. you know, I think one of the things that, and that's, that is good for a lot of different clients for a lot of different reasons, but you know, there's also different challenges. Like not everybody has the space. Like I, I live in Manhattan, like thousand square feet that you would want to put like an e-clinic or something in an office yeah. is like, you know, that's, I don't know, $4,000. Like it's a lot of money, like on a monthly basis for people to give up certain space in certain areas. Okay. Um, so we've also wanted to improve, expand upon like what our spectrum is. So we've done a lot of work creating like direct primary care, virtual primary care and creating that spectrum across. So mm -hmm. we can meet you through a product, whether it's somebody coming into your home, you know, in a, in like an Amazon care type model, or we have a couple of different partners that are doing yeah. that. Um, but what we believe in is like the direct employee employer relationship and providing the employees access with more, even, even more affordable primary care. Mm -hmm. um, and not, you know, it's not like the doctor in a box where you could, you know, in a teledoc model where you could have, a new provider, you know, on every, every conversation. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. This is about like you are seeing Dr. Smith and Dr. Smith is your doctor or there's maybe three doctors because you're across multiple states. But, you know, Dr. Smith, Dr. Monahan are the doctors you're going to talk to. You have familiarity with them. They understand who you are. And, and then, you know, a lot of it too is allowing those doctors to do what they need to do. So we don't require that people go get tests or do any of that. But like, you know, biometric screening is mm -hmm. an important part of it. So if they do it, they get the biometric screening. It's identifi identification of the risk population that we're looking for through the data warehouse because all that stuff feeds into our data warehouse. Okay. So we know who's seeing the doctor. We know who's having gaps in, in medicine. So if you have hypertension, you're not taking cholesterol meds. Um, we know who you are. Okay. And, and we know, and not, like, not and we will find you. We will find out, <laughs> no, but we know who it is. And so it allows us to at least look at like an aggregate, like, hey, there's 35 gaps in care. Yeah. Yep. And those people are at risk. And especially when you combine that with diabetes and, and, you know, hyperlipidemia, like those people could have a heart attack or stroke. Well, and that's what it's all about, right? Is how early of detection can you actually get to, right? So yeah. like, you know, if you see these gaps in cares, but you recognize them early enough that it gets before it becomes a catastrophic event, right? So, yeah. so engaging them downstream in that continuum of care. But okay, talk to me about like, let's say we identify gaps in care with these 35 people. Okay, now what? Well, so it depends on the employer, like what they want to do with that. You know, a lot of people have different incentives, so it allows us to structure a different plan. So if they're looking at like wellness incentives, you know, what can we do there? Can we look at, um, you know, increasing doctor's visits, one? Like, because I think there's also the accountability to seeing your doctor and seeing things not improve. Um, we can do outreach because we, because of the system we have, mm -hmm. we're able to look at and say we can do like, you know, video reminders, like, you know, we can do outreach via, you know, mail, email, whatever. Um, and keep it general, but like we were able to do that. Um, it just really depends on what the employer is willing to engage and how. But yeah. I think like half the battle is getting people to know the risk. And if we took it a risk pool on you know a thousand lives, and maybe we identify two hundred that are a problem, right? That and to have those risk factors, you know, if we do outreach and, and, and impact two or three, those are still two potential claimants that yeah. we're taking off the list. It's just where this becomes tricky is it's what is the ROI of some of these actions. Yeah. But I think doing nothing is more risky than doing something. Oh, hundred percent. Right. And yeah, maybe that two or three, one of them, maybe you saved a life or something yeah, like that. And that's right? what like, we believe that. Yeah, yeah. We, we talk a lot about trying to improve the employee experience and trying to improve like employees health and well-being. And you know, it's, it's small steps and none of this is like, none of this can go, you can't just flip a switch and be like, now we put a doctor in and everybody's gonna be healthy. Yeah. 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 It's, I mean, these are lifestyle changes. Well, so in your opinion, and I, I like to ask this of a lot of folks is like, where is the employer's responsibility? And then where's the employee's Do you know where in your, your eyes, where the line is, where there's an overstep? Because I mean, I, I would love if employers had the ability to kind of get a little bit further down into the, I want to say big brothers, but, or be paternal, but like have some say, right? Because like we're providing healthcare, we're providing access to all these solutions, but you're not using them, right? So like, how do you get to the actual employee to change their behavior? So that is where we kind of got to that care spectrum. Like it's about simplification. So okay. like the employee doesn't have to leave the office. They can do a, a video call with the doctor. They okay. can, they could, in certain scenarios, they could bring them into their house. They can go to an onsite clinic, depending on what so we build. So add a layer of convenience. Yeah. Then. So like, yeah. I think you have the convenience and then you take away the cost. Okay. So like, what I mean by that is like, there's no charge for that primary care visit or for, for any yeah. clinic visits in. We've had clinics that were able to sell um, generic drugs. So there's like a huge incentive where you can buy, you know, if they're selling Advil for 30 cents a pill at CVS, like we're getting it for 10. 
Okay. And so like scenarios like that, where that is an interest, like that for people is like, you know, reason to go in. But anybody you can cycle through there, you know, versus the market, like the average primary care cost is $220 for a preventive visit to the plan. Okay. Because most of them are waiving for preventive because everyone, we yeah. all agree that yeah. you need to see a doctor, right? But like, you know, in a onsite clinic model, <clears throat> depending on the, the price structure, it could be 50% or more savings on just those visits. Okay. And those compound. Yeah. yeah. And so it's, it's less about, I mean, it's, it's about the financial savings that it goes with, but it's also about just the incentive of getting people to the doctor. And what? I think that's where, to answer your question. Yeah. That's where you start running That's, into, like, okay. you can get people to the doctor, you can send them to get there, but they have to want to change. Yeah. And the hardest part is it's getting people to change. But, like, this this risk isn't going away. It's exacerbating year over year. Yep. And COVID compounded that with a lot of unhealthy habits that were started, and a lot of people got healthy, a lot of people got unhealthy. So, yeah. like, there's just there's always going to be this synergy. You have to continue to do well, something. Well, that's the argument always uh, <laughs> been like why traditional wellness plans didn't work is because they only really got <clears throat> to the people that were already going to do their steps anyways. They're yeah. already going to eat the apple anyways, right? It wasn't necessarily getting the person that they were truly trying to target for behavioral change. And so I think that's why some of those those didn't quite work out as, as advertised. And, and to your point, yeah. though, like if you were unhealthy, right, and you start doing some walks, like you do like a walk a quarter, that's not going to fix you. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, you need to do a walk a day. Yep. <clears throat> and I think that's where, like, those step challenges would, would deal with, like, in months and weeks, not in years. And, like, that's what we're dealing with is the compounding problem of somebody being unhealthy. And I once had someone explain to me, like, you know, the, one of the biggest challenges with getting healthy is, like, it doesn't take much to get unhealthy. Yeah. You can gain a pound a month and you wouldn't even notice until, yeah. like, at the end of the year, you're like, wow, I'm 12 pounds heavier. Yep. But, like, you know, at the end of a month, if you're, like, up a pound, you wouldn't even think about it. Right. So I think it's, it's all of that. It's, like, being healthy well, yeah, so the, I, there's, I forgot the exact phrase, but it's like most human <clears throat> beings' problems are their inability to see themselves 10 years down the road, right? So yeah. whether you're smoking today or whether you're eating something bad or not exercising today, it's because the immediacy of gratification isn't, isn't or the immediacy of the problem isn't recognized, but yeah. the gratification itself of doing that bad habit is right away. But if you could see yourself down the road <clears throat> 10 years and go, what is the compounding effect of these bad choices? All of a sudden you might go, you know what? I'm not going to have that cheeseburger or wh whatever the case may be um so uh, the one thing i want to ask you about uh you know you, that you've touched on a couple times dpc yeah direct primary care how do you do that with the employer size that you're dealing with i'm sure they're spread out quite a bit mm -hmm. across the country and that's a common um i would say um not disconnect but inability for dpc to scale to a degree because you've got to have all these different places for all the population so how do you get around that problem or is there a hybrid model with virtual that you guys are implementing we have looked at like a hybrid model in those scenarios and you know i think some of it is you have to have critical mass in a specific area for okay. it to make sense so about 100 lives is where it makes sense where you could put that in place and you know at that 100 live in a like so if that company has you know seven offices 100 100 300 500 mm -hmm. You know, those offices, but there's one that's 50. The one with 50, like, you probably want to layer with some version of a virtual primary care model. Okay. Um, but, you know, I don't think that, like, everybody needs the same, like, the same thing in every office. You know, all offices are different. Like, and we talk about, like, the different companies that we've worked with in the past. Not every region is the same as the other regions. They all kind of do things differently. So I think it's really incumbent upon having, like, a breadth of, of options. So, like, all right, that, that, where, the fit, where there is 50 employees, it doesn't justify building out a clinic, but we can definitely give them access. Mm -hmm. They can have access to the doctor. It's, you know, still run through the same program. So it's, it's cohesive. And I think that's really important in how like people are adopting it. And they want more than just that telehealth. Like, the, like you should be able to handle like 80 to 85% of, of the issues you're dealing with in primary care environment through, you know, a virtual model. Yeah. And so, and some of them, like, you can still get, you know, if you have to do monitoring, like, you can still get, you know, your blood cuffs out or you can get things that you need so that people can still monitor those issues and do that remotely. You don't have to have a doctor on site to do that. Yeah. And so I think the, the, the direct primary care, in my opinion, is more about, like, you know, just getting a face that is a familiar medical provider to the employees on a consistent basis. Well, and to me, it's also you, you're controlling a layer of the cost spectrum by basically yeah. isolating and putting over in a bucket that's now predictable, right? So yeah. the fee-for-service model that's traditionally done through the insurance incentivizes testing that may or may not be required, incentivizes yep. steering them to a specialist that's in their network, you know, for referrals, like all of a sudden the incentive model is a little bit perverse away from the individual. Yeah. Now I can go, well, let's bucket these over here. Now they're predictable in cost. I can do a lot of the things that, uh, you know, 
traditionally people are seeking a physician to do. I can do it in this model, not have to upcharge for that, yep. have a better relationship, more access to my doctor, things like that. It's, it's as close to a no brainer in terms of medical care, in my opinion, that there is, but I know there's obviously headwinds around contracts and the way these physicians have always been paid that you can't just flip a switch and make everybody go to a DPC model overnight. No. And I think, but like, I think there's the, the other benefit too, is the ROI on the other side of it, which is when, once you identify someone who's unhealthy and they need to go see a specialist, you can start having some control as the employers to like, you know, where you recommend they go. So you can get them to the high quality facility that has the good cost structure mm -hmm. and has the good contracts. Like, cause otherwise like people are finding doctors, you know, for specialists or for oncology or for different procedures by like asking a buddy, like, oh, yeah, hey, yeah. like Spencer, I like, I need to get my knee done. Do you have a good doctor? Yeah. Like it's, it, we shop for nothing like this. Yeah, I know. You know, and that's how, but that's how people are finding like the next step in care. So it also allows you to give some additional guidance through some of the concierge components of that, yep. where you can start helping people find their way to a place where they're going to get the right care. And we've seen different examples where someone, you know, had a knee replaced, but it was the hospital that was like least known for that in a specific area. And they drove by two of the better hospitals to do it. And yeah. it's just like, outcomes and you know when you start looking at some of the experience the way like we all do in the self-funded world is you start seeing like the septic claims and, and some of those things you're like that is a function of like that is a mistake by the hospital yes and you're now paying that you know essentially paying that claim you know a second time for a completely avoidable thing yeah and like those results are like you know not the same at every hospital yeah and that's what i think just shining a light on the actual outcomes themselves or the quality you know the actual quality of the outcome of that provider or the consistency of the quality of outcomes obviously the you know what their um you know what would you say the complications rate is and things like that like quantifying the ability of doctors because let's be mm -hmm. honest everybody goes to med school there's still going to be a spectrum of abilities, right? Yeah. Or, and there's still going to be, all, you know, other ways that they run a business that are less efficient than somebody else. And so there's going to be a spectrum of ability of your providers as well. And so I think just recognizing that, yeah. objectively quantifying that and steering people to the best ones, I think who, who's going to argue against that? Yeah. Other than the person's like, well, no, I've been going to Dr. Tom for 20 years and I want to keep going to Dr. Tom. But And the goal in this, though, isn't to take that relationship away yeah. either. Like, keep going to Dr. Tom. Yeah. But not everybody else has a Dr. Tom. Yeah. And so, like, there's if you're if you're engaged with a clinician and you're you're doing work and you're comfortable as an employee, we want like that's that's what we're trying to attain by making this more accessible. Yep. Just what we have found is that not everybody has that habit, and so we want to help people forge that habit. We want to make it easier for them to do it, and then once we can identify if there's an issue, like how can we help them get healthier? Yeah. And like how can we keep them on the spectrum, leveraging the services we're providing, and then directing them to places where they can get better care. Yeah. And so like, that's really how I see this going. And then like, you know, one of the next steps in this, I think is like getting into direct contracting and how do you direct contract with specific facilities to like attain a better network? And that becomes more challenging. And we talked about some of that, but like it becomes more challenging in that like different hospitals, if you're tied to a, a booking network, have different contracting right. contract obligations. And so like that becomes a little more con a little more challenging, but it's, it's an opportunity. Well, how does your, you know, coming from 12 years at Aetna, right in the Buka world, has that shaped your consulting? Or do you think now, you know, being on the other side of it, maybe it's, um, you, you kind of see what you were doing inside of that world. And then now you can see what's being done outside of that world. I'm sure it's not a, it's not an either or, but also yeah. I, I'm sure that has an impact on the way that you consult as well. Right. Well, I think understanding what they were doing, you know, like from a contracting standpoint or, or from a strategy standpoint, but I think like one of the misnomers in the carrier space in general is that they're not innovative. Yeah. There's a ton of innovation that's happening inside the walls of those things. But, like, as it gets closer to market, it loses some of the, the innovation because there's so much red tape that ties yeah. up some of the like, innovation that they bring out. So, like, we launched, when I was on the medical side of that, and we launched three product-based ACOs, and, and I was very involved with our market head in bringing that to market. And one of the biggest challenges was, like, you couldn't aggregate the ACOs. So you couldn't take, like, three ACOs and put them into, like, one really narrow network of high-performing, you know, of high-performing facilities because it broke the contract with other facilities. So, like, if you use... One of the hospitals was that we launched was in in, down, in Midtown Manhattan, but in order, like as a Manhattan resident, that would have been eligible to use that ACO as a product-based ACO because it was a lot of it was a function of like your proximity to that specific zip code. Okay, I would have to walk across two different hospital campuses of hospitals that were not considered ACOs but were in network to get to the ACO. Ah. And, like, the savings on the premium was fourteen percent, but like fourteen percent on like my share of that was not enough money for me to care. Right. 
to go walk an extra 20 blocks to get to that ACO. Well, and that's what you said last night. You're like, I live in New York not to be inconvenienced, right? Like, yeah, I, like, I mean, like, <laughs> I need to be able to find, like, an Earth, Wind & Fire album, a pizza, and, yeah. like, a beer within two blocks two of it. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And so to try and get to, to try and, you know, get through and, and like, get to that is, is challenging. Yeah. And, you know, in a major metropolitan area, I actually think it becomes, you have more facilities to work with and probably the opportunity to drive more volume. One of the challenges is, like, it's probably more relevant in a less, in a more remote area. Okay. Where there's less hospitals and there's less options. So how can we like make sure that like, it, but then you also, you lose your leverage in, because you don't have the volume. Yeah. And so it's, it's just really, but so I think that my point in this is that I think there's a lot of really great innovation that has come out of, at least in my time at Aetna, I, there was a ton of really good ideas, yeah. a lot of really good in, innovation. But what I've taken from that is like, there was a lot of really good ideas that I now have the, uh, like can repurpose. Or that I like the stuff. Well, that you we don't have on, as we know many of the constraints that you would have had inside those walls to do what you you want to do. Because ultimately, I think why you're in the seat, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but as you get the ability to, if you see a solution that's out there that's going to work for an employer, you have the ability to, to do it, right? Yeah. Because your your focus is what's best on the for the employer and the employee, and not necessarily what's best for the organization that I, that I sell for. Right. Cause you know, sometimes those two things can be misaligned. Yeah. And yeah. that's why we're here in general. I mean, like Karen and Tanya, when they founded the business and they started this, they were one of the top five consulting houses in the world, mm-hmm. both senior vice presidents, you know, had big, had a great book of business and, but they felt constricted on like what they could offer. They was tied to different, you know, different panels that they had to use or different solutions. Yeah. And they want to just be like, we want to do what's right this minute for that yeah. client without, you know, without fighting through some of like the logistical things that come. And I think all of these companies have fantastic people and and have fantastic innovation. We just want to be able to do the things that we need to do faster and without having to go down the road of like, what are the restrictions on this? Because the organization is different different contracts. Well, I need a panel, right? Am I going to, am I going to piss off this one carrier because yeah, if I, I don't put go there. volume with them, you know, yeah. right. To get the bone, you know, like all those things that and like, is that the employer's best interest or is that you? As no. A, and that's yeah, where, yeah. that's where we, it gives us true autonomy to function like I that. I love that. And so, well, and so speaking of Genesis, like, you know, I want to kind of, we'll move us towards act three and spend the last uh, 15 minutes talking about kind of big picture what you're doing, but you guys went through a, a rebranding, right? Yeah. So I love the color scheme. Those uh, Genesis with a Y, G E N E S Y S, right? Yep. Go look it up. Genesis health or what's the, what's the actual website that you uh www.genesis.health dot health okay yeah but it's like this really awesome kind of uh what, like a charcoal gray with a fuchsia or what's the pink uh like i don't know what you would call uh, the pink I, I I, like for me that's highlighter pink highlighter that's, pink. i know, gotta look up the hex code to see what like it's called i'll send but, it to you <laughs> yeah but it's uh but it's like it's really cool juxtaposition but the brand like i well the first time i saw it it stood out like it's nothing like that i see in the marketplace there's a pretty common color schemes that you see i talked to a lot of brokers and i've kind of yeah. seen them all but it was the first time i was like whoa that's a, that caught my eye and i'm sure that was obviously intentional and obviously the co-founders are you know female co-founders as well so um, did that play into the branding or I think you said you picked the pink, right? I was involved in picking. Yeah, okay, I said, we, like, I think it, the way it went down was Tiny's like, we need a pop color. And I was like, we need some pink. We need some pink. But yeah. like we, the three of us have, have known each other for a long time now. And I think one of the things that's really fun is we all have different ways of thinking about things, but we get to the same result or the same place. That's it's cool. just like different thought processes. And it, it, that's good because you see a lot of things from different ways. So we, if we don't get to the same place, we're, we talk it through. And with the pink, it was just funny. We're like, we need more. Like, it was it was this blue, this gray, this white. Um, we're like, we need something. And yeah. then we're like, we need some pink. Yeah. And then, like, they came back with, like, a pop. And we were like, there was a couple. Then there was, like, six different versions of pink that we had to yeah, look at. Yeah, I know. Like, I don't know. What do you think? That's <laughs> like painting a wall, right? Like, your wife's like, no, like, this is, it's, uh, like, ocean blue. Or, yeah. no, like, like cobalt blue. You're like, I, they all look the same to me until you get them on the wall, you know? But y'all, whatever y'all, the decision you made, it, it clearly stands out. And I think it's probably now you guys are moving into this sort of phase two of what you're, what you're building. And um, the brand itself is going to stand out pretty, pretty strongly in the marketplace, I think. You're also, branding-wise, you guys are doing your own podcast, right? So tell yeah, me we about launched what you, that. You launched that uh, here. What, has the episode been released yet, the first? No, uh, so it'll, okay. it next like, week or two, I think. Okay. Um, it was, it, what, a, what an experience. And, like, thank you because of all that, like, support you gave and of course, direction right? and all that stuff. But it was such a cool experience. And, and even watching you kick this thing off today is a learning experience. I mean, it took like five takes to yeah, get yeah, that yeah. off the ground. But um, yeah, we did. Jim Hubner from Reliance Standard was with me. He was cool. a national account practice leader. It was really, really a fun experience to get that going. And it's something we want to start. We, the kind of the whole process on the, the podcast was between Karen, Tani, and I, we were having a lot of really interesting conversations with a ton of different vendors. Um, trying to solve a bunch of really complicated yeah. solutions. And we're like, if we could bottle this and show that instead of like through a PowerPoint 
far more interesting. Well, far more interesting. And the cool thing is like, these are discussions that people will find interesting, right? It's yeah. like, so, yeah, there was this, this old uh, kind of mentality of like, these conversations have to be in secret and in the conference room. And only we, you know, only we get to talk about this in private and some things of course still need to be that way, but these broader conversations about marketplace solutions and Hey, what are you doing with this? Or how do we fix this? And having a, uh, a public conversation about yep. that is what I, I like to do here. And I appreciate you being forthcoming about what you're doing because it's, it's, it's rising the tide uh, for yeah. everybody. Um, and I appreciate you guys doing that. You're going to find that it's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> you know, it's going to, it's going to draw your attention sometimes away, you know, but it's, 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 it's worth it because the ability to produce a product that you're proud of and that people will recognize and know you for. And then again, you're having conversations that add to the public good. Yeah. I think it's going to be a really rewarding experience yeah. for you as well. And we were like, we found it. We were very fortunate DNR studios, who was a fantastic partner for us and like helping me get this off the ground. Um, and we're excited. And I agree with you. Like, I think it rises the tide and giving people awareness in, you know, I'm a bigger believer. I don't mind if people understand how we make the sausage. Yeah. Like, I think yeah. it's okay. Like, I think in, in understanding some of the conversations we're having in real time makes it interesting to see, like, where we're trying to take it. Yeah. And so that was our hope in this, you know, with, with a lot of the conversations we had with different point solutions on trying to solve, you know, whether it's, whether it's trying to help control diabetes or, you know, whether it's trying to improve access to care or whatever we're trying to solve for, those conversations were really relevant. And if you could hear them firsthand, I think it's a really interesting opportunity for people to see, like there is more out there than just like, let's go to market and let's see. Cause like if we went on the trajectory we were at like the last couple of years, mm -hmm. the deductibles would be like $10,000. Cause right. everyone's just like, Oh, it's a cost going up. Like it will just like yeah. increase the deductible max amount of pockets can go up a thousand. Like, and that was like the solution. And that's right. not, and we at Aetna were the first test monkeys on when they rolled out the HRAs and the HSAs like back in like 2007. So, like, we got to experience that firsthand. But, like, I think when you just sit there and you say, like, the, the real option is we're just going to increase the deductible, we're going to change coinsurance or change the plans. You know, what we try and accomplish is doing that without all of that. And mm -hmm. I think, like, how we do that is through some of those conversations and having, you know, our clients, our prospects, people are interested in working with us understand like the innovation that we're trying to undertake through all that stuff and mm -hmm. hear that live. It's, well, and it's, 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 it's also digest. a long form conversation where the ideas get to flow. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. no, no, that actually may not work. You know, like you get to hear the ideas that aren't the best as well. Right. It's not like you've got this very polished one pager of all the cool yeah. keywords <laughs> and power, you know, like, no, this is a conversation that we're actually intellectually trying to resolve together, right? Yeah. Which is fun part about communication, in my opinion. So kind of last couple questions, we'll get you on your way. I know you got a, a plane to catch. Bigger picture of healthcare, mm -hmm. future of healthcare. Like, what are you guys driving to? What are you seeing like more uh, global uh, changes that are happening in the healthcare uh, marketplace? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's a lot of stuff changing. Yeah. You know, and I think it's, it's you know, even like the regulatory environment, like even, you know, last week, earlier, it might've been earlier this week, DeSantis came out and is approving more regulation on like PBMs. I okay. think like there's a lot of stuff that's coming from a government standpoint that like, it'll be interesting to see where it takes us. Okay. Cause I think directionally, I don't think we'll see the shift of like Obamacare that we experienced, you know, 10, 12 years ago. But I think, you know, there's definitely going to be some further regulation between the transparency. Yeah. And it's interesting to see like where that will take us, even from like a hospital standpoint. Um, I do believe that there's going to be like that the direct contracting and like the virtual primary care and, and direct primary care is going to take foothold. I do too. I, I just, it's going to take time. It's a change, but there is, you know, our biggest part of the workforce now is millennials and like they consume things differently than the baby booners to generation X. Yeah. And so I think like how this is going to be done is going to change. And I believe the technology is coming. Yeah. There's so much money over the last five years that has flowed towards healthcare and solving problems. Um, I think all of those are things that are going to change. And then, you know, I think like, you know, right now there's been a number of different solutions. Some that, some that we've leveraged where they're looking at like cash payments are more adv advantageous than, you know, paying through the, you know, directly through the network and, yeah. you know, the cash price of care and stuff. And that's got to change. Yeah. So, and, and maybe it doesn't, maybe it doesn't or how long it takes, but I think those are areas that are all going to change over time. And I, but the technology component has to be the biggest driver. Uh, I mean, of course, I, I obviously agree with that sentiment, but even just like what you're talking about, like physicians and DPC and things like that, well, guess what? Now we're introducing it to a younger audience. Maybe we're introducing it to the physicians that are in medical school right now, and they come out of medical school and go, wait, I don't have to, you know, have this huge administrative staff and, you know, file insurance claims and spend a bunch of money. I could, I could just 
have a payment model where I get paid a, a monthly membership rate and have my pool of people and I make a nice living, but I, I'm serving the community simultaneously. There's another way. Like I just introducing that idea to the people that are going to be coming out of school and setting up their own practices yep. is a way to start reaching that critical mass. Well, and it's interesting. I spoke to a company the other day and I'm trying to remember the name of it, but they, um, they were out of Boston and he was, they were starting to build or purchase outpatient surgery centers. And like, mm -hmm. so they were starting to drive membership into there and they were trying to figure out how they were going to bring this to market at the very early stage. But they have one outside of a major metropolitan hospital in LA and they were starting to drive people in there. And like the doctors were happy to sell the practice. Mm -hmm. They kept on the staff, they took on the risk and they were then able to it, do some of these surgeries for fractional cost because they were able to, you know, gain economies of scale from what they were creating. Interesting. And they're almost like surrounding the hospitals. So like those people still have admitting privileges to the specific hospitals because they have to. Okay. Um, if they need that. But like for outpatient type surgeries, they were able to do it in their own sur surgery center at a reduced cost because of some of the efficiencies they gained through the acquisitions. And so like those types of things are going to keep coming. Yeah. And, you know, not all of them will stick, but I think as this goes along those are different examples of what could potentially change. Mm -hmm. And, and I think the other, like we do need the technology to tie all this together. And I think like even just the interface of like the medical data is so bad. Yeah. And so like, you know, having people have access to the medical data, the same way they would have their purchasing history on Amazon, right? Like nobody has access to any of that stuff or it's like an EOB on a Buka site or your TPA site. Like it's not, that part of it is still clunky. And yeah. so like, that'll take us a long way because like, yeah, I like that, like the consistency of that data flow is going to improve. Yep. And yep. so it's like that infrastructure improves, that improves. And then like that allows doctors to, to issue care differently because like if you go to a specialist and they don't have all your stuff, it's a self-reported, you know, thing that you just did either. Maybe they have an iPad, but most likely it's on a clipboard. Yep. So I just think like the, the, the flow of data, it has to improve and should over time with the technology improvements. When I, I would agree. I mean, I think what I, what I hope to do is just publicize that this space exists, that there's these very yeah. fun, compli complicated problems to solve to go, hey, let's get the best minds in this industry. There's a lot of opportunity. Tons. So ton of money, like, like infinite money, it seems like in our space. And the more and more we can attract the best talent to people to come to the table and actually provide solutions and yeah. come up with solutions and new ideas. That's, I mean, I think it's, there is a, a, an ocean of opportunity in, in healthcare. And, and I hope people, more and more people are drawn to it because we need the best minds to help us solve this problem. What, what is it? 20% uh, uh, of our GDP, something like that. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. It's massive. And so closing thoughts, Matt, I know we got to get you on your way, man. You've been <laughs> a, a rock star and I really appreciate you. been fun hanging out, but kind of closing thoughts for the podcast as we go on our way. No, I, we, I, we're just very privileged to have been invited. We really appreciate having us. You know, we are excited about, you know, as we've rebranded and take our product to market and take our company to market, we're really excited about the opportunity to help people. Yeah. And I think like this gave us a platform to talk about some of what we're doing. Um, and we're excited that, you know, as people become interested in us and we, and we begin working with them to start having some of the impact we're talking about. And I think like right now is just the beginning. I think there's like the next five to seven years, there's such a massive opportunity to train, to, to, ch to, to change the trajectory of, of how people are experiencing healthcare. Yeah. Cause it doesn't have to stink. I mean, it's no, always it not going to be awesome cause you're still going on, like you still have to go to a facility. You're still going to a doctor and like, you're going there for a reason but it doesn't have to be the experience that we've had over the last 20. It doesn't have to be our last 43 years growing up in or my last 43 yeah. years, you know, a, a dreary tan room <laughs> with a weird bed. Like there's stuff that we can improve on that to make yeah. that experience better and more convenient. And so I appreciate just having the opportunity to talk about that. Yeah, man, I, I'm, I, I'm excited to get a chance to even highlight, you know, spotlight what you guys are doing. I love what you're doing. Uh, very mission aligned with what, what I think as well. So good luck to you, man. Excited to see the growth and excited to release, release this episode. Cool. Thanks, man. All right, man. This is good. Care.